I want you to think about a, uh, a song that oftentimes gets sung on Easter. We didn't sing it this time. Uh, we, we could a different time, but I want you to think about this. In this song, it asks a question, and it says, You ask me how I know he lives. Okay, how many of you know the song? What is the, the answer to that, according to the song? He lives within my heart. Okay, now, let me just say this. Before you start throwing things at me, put the hymnals or the Bibles down or your things that you don't check your phone or if you brought some fruit or something like that. Um, I, I don't want uh, to disturb you on this. It, it, but what I want to point out, and I want to make this really clear, is that if you had asked the apostles, okay, if you went back in time as they are talking about Jesus Christ being risen and you asked them, how do you know this is true? How do you know that Jesus lives? They would not say, he lives within my heart. That is not how they would answer this. They would say, we know that he lives because we saw him. We saw him, we experienced that this is a, a, a real reality. Again, I don't want to, to uh, say that you can't never sing that song, but do realize you could sing that song and still not believe that Jesus literally physically rose from the dead. And I don't know if it was written you know, that way or not, and I, I know that you guys don't sing it that way, but he lives within my heart. Okay, well, hopefully he, he does, but not just that, that he actually rose. In the song, he, he, uh, he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Does he? Spiritually, maybe but not like he did with the apostles after he rose from the dead, where he literally walked with them and talked with them. And like Jesus literally will again when he literally returns. Okay, so spiritually it's true, but you have to sing that song spiritually plus that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And he really is coming back. So the main point I want to get is just to realize that why do we believe in the resurrection? That it traces back to the fact that the apostles, these witnesses, and, and others besides the apostles, they really saw Jesus. They saw an empty tomb, and then they saw that Jesus Christ had appeared to, to them. And this explains how all of this got started. You think of how many uh, hundreds of millions of Christians are worshiping today the risen Jesus Christ. And it is amazing, and you think, well, how did this get started? Is this a myth that really just caught on? It was a great inspiring story, a great legend, and it just, it, it just took off. And here we're doing this. And some people have doubts about this, and just assume it's a, it's a nice thing that we talk about that gives comfort to people, you know, but we're sophisticated. We know it, it really didn't happen. So if we're on to answer the question, why does Christianity exist today? Why do millions of people worship Jesus? I want to think back. Why did, in the first century, why did thousands of people in the first century, starting in Jerusalem, where this all took place, why did it start with, with thousands of people that began to believe that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead and that he is the God-man that came and that he died on a cross and rose from the dead. And so the main point of this message is this, that Christianity began and spread because eyewitnesses testified that Jesus literally, he literally physically rose from the dead after being killed on a Roman cross and buried in a local tomb. And people saw this and reported it, and it was credible. People believed it, and it took off. I thought about doing this message because other weeks we are going through Second Peter, and in Second Peter, at one point in Second Peter one sixteen, Peter really stresses that what he and the other apostles are communicating was not a myth. It was not a myth. It was not a legend. And he says, "But we were eyewitnesses." And he mentions he himself, the person writing this letter, was an eyewitness of these things. And when we talked about uh, that passage, Peter specifically mentions the, the transfiguration, which was this time before the cross where uh, three of the apostles go up on the mountain with Jesus and he is, he's transformed and they see the, just the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. 
And so I thought this would be a great uh, year to really talk about eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And when I started looking in Scripture about all of the different places that talk about eyewitnesses of the resurrection, I was amazed by how often in Scripture it references uh, people witnessing this or testifying that they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. It is not a once or twice thing in Scripture. In fact, as we go through this in the outline, uh, there are so many of these in- examples in Scripture uh, that it just, it's overwhelming. And if you're looking at the outline, you're going to see, well, there's kind of a, a lot of Scripture references here. We're not going to be able to look at all of those. There's too many. But in, I believe, every one of those references, it either talks about people being eyewitnesses of the resurrection or telling other people that, that they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection and that they should believe because I saw this and I'm reporting it to you. So Christianity is not based on a myth. It's not a legend that developed. It was based on eyewitness testimony. And I thought what we can do, the way to organize this also, is I want to talk about just how Christianity started from the very first reports of the, the apostles hearing about something happened at the tomb, Jesus isn't there, Jesus rose from the dead, all the way to the early church and all the way to today and all the way to you. And the point that you are at, either having to decide, are you going to believe this? Are you going to believe and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who died and rose again for you? Or are you going to say, well, this is a nice story and I'm, I'm going to walk away? Because that's the choice each of us makes. And I hope that going through this, that through the testimony here and the power of this Holy Spirit that is with the Word, that God will convince you that this is legit, that this makes sense. If we think about how this all unfolds and how it went through time, that all this makes sense, and it makes sense way more than any other uh, explanation about how this all got started and why not just Peter and Paul, but but thousands and uh, all these growing numbers in the early church, started to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, if your mindset is, well, I know it just didn't happen because that's impossible, well, then you're committing circular reasoning. You're starting with a conclusion, I know it didn't happen, therefore it didn't happen. But if you have an open mind on this and judge this, this is historically compelling. So, I want to think through this. If you were uh, one of the original apostles... Okay, and it was uh, Sunday morning, and there would be a time where you are in just uh, depression, uh, despondency. You would have not woken up Sunday morning uh, feeling great about things. You would have had the, uh, the worst weekend of your entire life because you just spent three years following around this one that you adored, that you looked up to, uh, that you believed that this is the Messiah, that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the one that had been promised, that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. He was the the one that was going to come to to save us. And just a week ago, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and people were saying Hosanna and spreading out uh, palm leaves and their their coats and ushering him in, you you were thinking, this is great. He's going to come in and maybe now he's going to usher in the, the kingdom of God. Everyone is excited. Maybe he's going to throw off the Romans. You would have been so excited about this. And then things took a dive during the week. And on, on Thursday night, that Jesus uh, is, is arrested. That it turns out Judas one that you thought was one of your, uh, your brothers, your uh, fellow you know, uh, disciples here, betrayed Jesus. And Jesus is, is taken and he is, he's beaten, he's whipped beyond belief. And finally, they, they kill him. And they don't just kill him, they put him on a cross. And the cross is for, for criminals. It's for the, the worst of the worst. And this isn't what happens to God's chosen. This isn't what happens to, to the Messiah. And he's, he's straight out killed. The Romans don't mess around. They don't make mistakes. 
They speared him through at the end. He is dead. And all hope is gone. Because when you're dead, you're dead. It's just the end of things. It's the end of the season. There's no next year coming back. We'll do better next time. All hope is gone at this point. And so Jesus is dead. You hear they, they buried him. At least he got a proper burial. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the, the council, had pity on him, get, put him in his tomb. But what do we do now? Jesus is dead. So you're there, you're thinking about what to do. And the first inkling that something was happening would be that these women come in and they tell you that they've been to the tomb and the tomb is empty. So if we think through this, I'm going to have like 12 different kind of steps as far as how this, this spread happened. The first one is that the apostles first learn about the empty tomb from women who were eyewitnesses. So the very first eyewitnesses were these, were these women. And I'm going to read here from Luke 24. And this describes what happens. But on the first day of the week, so that's Sunday, at early dawn they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Because they covered the door of this with giant stone that uh, they roll in front of it. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Like, what's going on? He's, he's gone. He's missing. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Jonah and Mary the mother of James and the other women who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So this was the very first thing that uh, they went, they saw, the, they didn't see Jesus at this point, but they saw the tomb that he was supposed to be in, he's not there. And what's, what's going on? It's Jesus isn't there, and then these two, well, turns out they're angels, appear to them and say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. And they tell them, he has risen. And then they go back, and they tell this to the other apostles. Now, before we move on, one thing to notice about this, and this is one of these things that is a, it's a mark of authenticity about these, uh, the gospel record, is because the, the very first people recorded that are witnesses of this were women. Okay? Now, I want to say this carefully. Okay? In the first century, and among the Jews, they considered the witness of women to be worthless. Okay? I want to point out, I'm not saying that. Okay? I am not saying that. Don't look at me like that. Okay? <laughs> but in that day, um, that's what they considered. In a courtroom, they, uh, if you went to trial, they didn't consider the uh, witness of women to be of any value. Again, not saying that's right. But do you realize how that, for us today, actually gives so much credibility to the gospel accounts. Because if you were writing this 2,000 years ago and you were just making up a story, you're like, I want to make up a story and I want people to believe this. How can I make this credible? Hmm, let's make uh, you know, some really important people, some, uh, you know, some doctors and uh, uh, some rich people and all this. Let's have them be the ones that find the tomb because that'll seem really credible. The reason that the Gospels report that it was found first by women is because that's what happened, okay? And the Gospel isn't writing this in a way to try and make it, you know, back then, just uh, let's put the best spin on it so we can get people, get the suckers to believe the story we're making up. This isn't a made-up story. This is what happened. And so the fact that the women were the first to see this and experience this is actually a huge mark of credibility that we see Today. So that's the very first thing. The apostles learn about us from women who are eyewitnesses. 
but even then, they're doubtful. They didn't just automatically believe this. Remember, the apostles, they weren't expecting Jesus Christ to rise from the dead. There's ways they should have known looking back. Jesus kind of told them this, but they didn't expect this to happen. First century Jews did not expect there to be a resurrection of anyone before the the very last days when everyone would get raised from the dead. They didn't expect this at all. And nobody expects the Messiah to be killed on a cross. So they weren't looking to this. So this is the very first thing. Second thing that happens is the apostles become eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. So at this point, still, they haven't seen Jesus yet, but they've seen the empty tomb. For these next sections, I'm going to jump over to uh, the Gospel of John. If you have scripture, you could open to that and follow along a little bit. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple is, is John. He's the author of the Gospel of John. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John gets there first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, following him, uh, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must first raise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So at least uh, Peter and John, they go, they eventually, they both go into the tomb. They're looking. The cloths that he was wrapped in are there. This is the tomb. This, there's not an issue of, well, they went to the wrong tomb. This is the wrong place. It was, it was the right one. Okay, but Jesus isn't there, but they're still not getting what's going on. They haven't seen Jesus yet. Although even just the fact that there's this empty tomb is a big deal. How do you explain this? How do you explain that there was an empty tomb? And realize, if Jesus had still been in the tomb, there would be no Christianity at all. If Jesus had been in, uh, in, in a tomb there or anywhere, there just wouldn't, we wouldn't be gathering here. You'd be doing something else this morning. I don't know what, but you'd be doing something. Because there have to be some other explanation as far as what happened. Okay, so if the apostles just lied about this, remember Christianity took off in the same place where this happened, in the same city where Jesus was buried. This wasn't, you know, something where they said, well, 400 years ago in this distant land, in this place that you can't check out, this happened, just believe me. No, it was something happening uh, in that place at that time. So if the apostles were just lying about this, remember you read the book of Acts and both the Romans and the Jewish authorities, they want to shut this down. They do not like Christianity. They want to uh, just squelch it. And all they would have needed to do would be to go and pull Jesus' body out of the tomb and just cart him around Jerusalem for a few hours and that's it. That's the end of Christianity. Oh, this risen Jesus, oh, look, here's his dead body, and no more Christianity. So if the apostles lied about it, that's all the Romans would have had to do, or the the Jewish authorities, and it would have shut everything down. And again, if you say, well, maybe the apostles went to the wrong tomb or something, well, I'm sure the others would have been able to find the right tomb. And I don't think that it makes sense to even say they went to to the wrong tomb. Historically, the tomb was empty. I mean, that's actually something that even skeptical scholars will admit that, yeah, there was an empty tomb. That this is one of the just kind of facts. They'll try and explain it in a different way. You know, today, we're not even really sure where the tomb of Jesus is. There's competing locations over there, and some will say, well, it's here, and others will say it's there. And actually, that's another mark of the credibility of this. Because... The early Christians, they did not commemorate and, and venerate this tomb. Why would they? Uh, he wasn't there. He was only there for a little while. It wasn't a big deal. They worship a risen Savior, not uh, the place where he remains buried. Uh, this was just a place he spent the night for two nights and just for just his body. 
So the apostles become eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Then after that, the first that sees Jesus actually risen is Mary Magdalene. And again, another one of the women. And like I said, we're not going to be able to read all of these accounts, but the risen Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, who then tells the disciples that she's an eyewitness of the risen Lord. So while some things are going on, uh, Jesus appears to her. At first, you know, she's crying and she doesn't grasp who it is, and then she realizes this is Jesus. So she, again, is the first one that sees not just the empty tomb, but actually Jesus risen from the dead. So once again, you know, if you want to think that the Bible is anti-woman, uh, it is not. This is Jesus having women as the ones that are the first to see the tomb, the first to see the risen Jesus, uh, the most monumental thing that has happened. But then after this, she tells the apostles, then 10 of the apostles become eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus when he appears to them. When I say 10 of the apostles, it talks about disciples. And there could have been others besides 10 of the apostles. Uh, But remember, there were 12 apostles originally. Judas uh, betrayed Christ, and then he kills himself. Uh, And also Thomas is not there at this first time. So there might have been other um, of the disciples, but at least as far as, you know, the the original disciples, 12, there would have been just uh, 10 of them there. And so it mentions here on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so it's Sunday again, and the doors being locked, when the disciples were, they were locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed him his hands and his side, because they nailed him to the cross, they stabbed them through with the spear to make sure that he was dead. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. So this is the first time that uh, a large group of the, uh, the apostles see Jesus, but Thomas isn't there. So next, skeptical Thomas, later on, Jesus appears again, and, and Thomas is also there. Let me read this account. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the, his hands, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the marks of the nails, and place my hands in his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, his disciples Stop for a moment here. He has at least 10 of the other apostles, these guys that he trusts, telling him that we have seen the Lord and he still doesn't believe. So think of this. Thomas here is not a guy that's just, hey, I'm willing to believe anything. You know, just, uh, hey, fake news, whatever it is. I'll believe whatever you have for me. Okay? No, he is he's skeptical. Uh, he is hard-headed about this. And really, you know, he, there should have been enough trust that if 10 of the other apostles are telling him, in all seriousness, no, we have seen the Lord. I mean, what do you think? Are we lying to you about this, Thomas? Do you think we've all, like, hallucinated? I mean, that's not how this works. You don't have 10 people that go crazy at the same time or hallucinate, you know, and have the same vision. That, it doesn't work like that. There's 10 of us, Thomas. We're, believe us, we're telling you this. But Thomas is skeptical. And so if you are someone that is skeptical. Let this speak to you as well. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. So we don't know, is he like coming through the wall? How does this work? He stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, because he knows what Thomas had said before, I'm not going to believe unless I put my finger in his, his hand and in his side. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He realized this was, this was Jesus. Also a strong statement here that he didn't believe Jesus was just the man. My Lord and my God, he said to him. 
And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Realize who that's referring to? If you're a believer here, we are not personally eyewitnesses, but we believe because Scripture tells us about the eyewitnesses that did see and they report this to us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So you have Thomas here who's, who's skeptical and yet he ends up believing. It's important to realize that skeptics were convinced of the truth of Jesus having risen from the dead. And it's not just Thomas. We're going to see later on there was Paul, there was James, the brother of Jesus, there was others. This was not a bunch of people that were just, just waiting and I'll believe anything. First century Jews, like I said, did not expect anyone to be resurrected before the end of the world. That there wasn't just going to be like one person that got to be resurrected first. So this wasn't an expectation that they were just, they were looking for. They also would not have expected God to become a man. That's not something they would have just thought would have happened. And first century Jews would not have expected God to bless anyone that was crucified on a cross. If you were hung on a cross or hung on a tree, you were considered cursed by God, not blessed by God. The guy wouldn't do that to the, to the Messiah. But skeptics were convinced. This was not just a hallucination. This wasn't just some kind of ghost Jesus. They could touch him. And I don't know, in this account, do you think Thomas actually did you know, touch his side and put his, do you think he needed to? You read other accounts, so Jesus could be touched, and they did interact with him, and it talks about him, him eating. You know, he came back with a real, literal, physical body. And they saw Jesus closed up. And I was thinking about this, too, because, you know, if you're skeptical and you're thinking about this, you know, sometimes you might think, well, maybe, you know, the apostles, they thought they saw Jesus. You know, sometimes there's people that claim they saw Bigfoot, you know, and sometimes good people that, you know, claim, hey, yeah, I saw him. It was, I was out at night, and it was, uh, it was a dark night, and off in the distance I saw something, and yeah, it was kind of foggy, and it was dark, and in the distance I saw it, and it was Bigfoot. And you think, yeah, all right, you know, I, I love you, but um, I don't think you really saw Bigfoot. I think you maybe think you saw Bigfoot, and it was dark, and it was foggy, and it was a distance, and all of this. But it'd be really easy to think, well, somebody's mistaken. But let's say you have a friend, and he says, you know, I, I saw a Bigfoot. And you're like, yeah, tell me about this. I'm like, yeah, I saw a Bigfoot, and I was out camping, and Bigfoot came up, and I was, you know, cooking, uh, making some s'mores. And Bigfoot came, and he sat down, uh, you know, next to me, next to the campfire, on my chair, you know, and uh, we talked for a while, and he's there, and put my arm around him. Hey, you want some s'mores? We made s'mores together, and he was right here. I saw him up close. I interacted with him. Now, if somebody told you that story, it is no longer an option to say, well, they were mistaken. Okay? They might be lying to you, and you would probably assume that at this point. Like, okay, whatever. Uh, But they couldn't just be mistaken. So when the apostles realize the accounts we have in Scripture, they're not saying, oh yeah, we saw this man in the distance, in the sun, and it looked like, oh, who's it? Oh, it must be Jesus. That's not what this is like. That on many occasions, they saw Jesus and they saw him close up and they interacted with them. So they're not mistaken about this. You could say, well, maybe they're all a bunch of liars. And if you think that, I challenge you, read the New Testament. Does this come across like people that are lying about this? That people are just making this up and they know full well it's, it's not right and they are deciding, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blaspheme and I'm going to do this and create this new religion because I'm an evil liar. Unless they're crazy, they wouldn't do that. And you know what? You say, well, well maybe they're crazy. Really? All of them? There's 12, ends up being, uh, they replace Judas. There's There's 12 apostles, and we're going to see there's actually hundreds that see Jesus. And if you're having visions or you had some bad mushrooms or something, 
not everyone is going to have the same vision. You're going to have your own individual thing. That's not how this works either. The best explanation is these people believe they saw Jesus because they really saw Jesus. And they saw him close up. And like I said, it wasn't just a few of these. It wasn't just the original, um, even the apostles. Next I'm going to turn, you see how it's, it's spreading. Our sixth stage here, we see that more than 500 people, and also James, the brother of Jesus, also become eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. This is a really important passage. Let me read this. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. It says here, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, that's another name for him, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I mean, some of them have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This is Paul talking. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is a great passage. First of all, in this passage, we see just the description of what, why Jesus went to the cross. That Christ died for our sins. That was the whole point of this. He died in our place on the cross. He died for sinners. He took upon himself the wrath of God, the punishment that I deserve, that you deserve, dying in our place for us. You know, this is the, the core of this. And notice at the beginning here, it says, I delivered to you, first importance, what I also received. So Paul, we're going to see, he was an eyewitness, but he also received these truths, these testimonies from others. There's some people, um, skeptical scholars, that used to say, well, you know, we know that Christianity probably developed, you know, it takes a long time for these myths to develop. And it probably wasn't until centuries later that all these things developed and that they started to believe that this, uh, this you know, peasant from Israel became uh, actually God and the God-man. That would have to develop over time. But here we see in one of Paul's letters, and people agree that, yeah, okay, this is written by Paul. It's probably written in the, the middle of the first century. Uh, so this is actually really early on, saying that Jesus Christ died and rose again and who he is. But also in here, he's saying that he's not the one originating this. He's giving this, this saying, this formula that he received that the church had been teaching for a long time. Probably going back to the very beginning that Christ died and he rose again. So this isn't something that just developed over, over hundreds of years or a long period of time or decades upon decades. So this says some of the examples of who Jesus appeared to. Cephas, we said, is, is Peter. It talks about he appeared to the twelve. I'm thinking, wait a second, I thought Judas, uh, he, he wasn't there, so they didn't have twelve. Well, the twelve here includes Matthias, and he's the guy that replaced Judas he also had to be an eyewitness. The apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. That was a, one of the qualifications. It talks about that in Acts 1, 21 through 26. But then it talks about 500 people that saw Jesus and saw that he was raised from the dead. And it says most of them are still alive. And so one thing to say, there were all these witnesses, but you, know, you can't really talk to them because they're all dead. But when you say, yeah, they're still around... It makes it really hard to fake a religion if you're saying that there's 500 witnesses that people can talk to about this and confirm it. Again, this isn't going to be some kind of mass hallucination. There's too many people at too many different times. It doesn't work like that. And let's say if around here, if there were 500 people in the Middleville area that saw something like this and could say, I saw this happen. I know it's strange and doesn't seem likely, but... 500 people could testify and say, I saw this. That would be something that would be easy to check out if they're still around. And then it talks about he appeared also to, uh, to James. 
Now, when it says this James, this isn't James, the brother of John, one of the apostles. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And so during Jesus' lifetime, uh, Jesus' brother, James, did not believe that Jesus was who he says he was. He was a skeptic. He was an unbeliever while Jesus was still alive. Think of how much it would take one of your siblings to get you to be convinced that they are the sinless son of God. Okay? I'm looking at my kids. How much would, it, would you be able to believe that uh, one of your brothers and sisters, you know, well, you can't be the son of God, so we, that just doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> but I, think about, I was thinking about it with my sister. If I said, hey, Leah, you know, I want you to worship me. I'm the sinless son of God. She'd say, oh, sinless son of God. Yeah, when we were kids, you tied me to the mailbox and left me there. <laughs> Now, James, the brother of Jesus, um, he probably just thought during his lifetime, yeah, okay, you're the Messiah, the, the Son of God here. No, you're my annoying older brother that never does anything wrong. But you want to believe that he was the Son of God. But after Jesus appears to him after being killed, he's like, yep, <laughs> okay, you won me over. So again, another example of someone that would have been really hard to convince that gets convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And then it says other apostles. This might include like uh, Barnabas or maybe some others that were also considered apostles. And last to Paul. And we'll talk to him in a little bit. So after this, you have a lot of these people that are they're seeing, and we don't know exactly when he appeared to the 500. But then at some point, the first new Christians learn about the resurrection then from eyewitnesses. And we see this in Acts 2 when um, after Jesus ascends to heaven and, and they wait and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them and we see that um, Peter, he preaches to this crowd. He says, men of Israel, he, this is just part of the whole thing, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Saying, you also saw some of these miracles before this too, so realize that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And Jesus, he was killed on the cross I was thinking about why does he make the point here that this was by God's plan, his definite foreknowledge. I think he's making the point that you're thinking this means Jesus was a failure, that he just, he wasn't really who he said he was, he wasn't the son of God, God rejected him. But Peter is saying, no, this was God's plan the whole time because this is how we get saved. This is how we get our sins taken away, that this had to happen. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this is what they were up to the whole time. This, this was part of the original game plan. But then it says, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he talks about David. He talks about some Old Testament prophecy. Verse 32, in this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Again, all these times it talks about we're witnesses of this. We saw this. Verse 40, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. So about 3,000 people become believers. So you see Christianity, it's, it's spreading. More people are believing because they're believing this eyewitness testimony. And then there's someone named either Saul or Paul that ends up being a believer. The apostle Paul originally was someone that was persecuting Christians. He had the name of Saul or Paul. One guy had, one was his more Hebrew name and one was his more Greek name. But he was a persecutor of the church. You think about people that were not inclined to just, yeah, I'm looking to believe. He was actively trying to hunt down and kill Christians to get them arrested, to get them killed. 
we don't have time to read this, but in Acts 9, you see that he is on his way to round up more Christians to, to be killed when Jesus literally appears to him, not just a vision. I mean, it's a blinding light, but it's Jesus, Paul saw the actual risen Jesus, and he becomes a believer because he was intercepted by Jesus. He saw Jesus, and he, he was changed. If Christianity was fake, I mean, how do you explain Paul? I mean, even the skeptics, they acknowledged there was a historical person named Paul. And he wrote, even the skeptics will say, well, at least most of the letters that it claimed that he wrote. And it seems like this Paul guy really believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So much that he went from a persecutor um, that was living a pretty good life with a lot of power and influence and all this to someone that spent the rest of his life basically being hunted, suffering, being despised, ended up being killed for this because he was convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I'd say the best explanation for this radical transformation is that he really saw Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ really changed him. That many more people become Christians through the testimony of Peter, John, Paul, other apostles, other eyewitnesses. Can't look at all these. In Acts 3.15, one example, they say, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. All these passages talk about witnesses, but I thought, sometimes we fly by and said, You killed the author of life. Author of life? They don't believe this Jesus was just some ordinary dude the author of life. And how messed up is it to kill the author of life, but God raised him from the dead? Another example, Acts 10, starting with verse 39. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of uh, the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, close up, eating and drinking. He's a real physical being. This isn't a hallucination. And he appeared to us, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We have to stress this. This has been in these passages before, but it's not just a neat thing to believe, just a historical reality that, okay, I believe this, but salvation depends on this. Forgiveness of sins. We are all sinners. And whether you consider yourself the biggest sinner that's here, or if you're in some kind of denial and you think you barely sin, guess what? We're all sinners. And it's a deep and it's a bad thing. But Jesus Christ, the reason he went to the cross and rose again is so that we could have that taken away. It was the only way. Christ had to pay for what we could never pay for. And you don't receive this. You don't get forgiveness by, I'm going to be a good person now. Or I'm going to believe right facts. You have to believe certain things, but then you trust yourself to Jesus Christ. You trust him as the one that did this in your place as your Savior. And that you do, you believe in him, you have faith in him, you trust in him. That's how you receive forgiveness of your sins. What an awesome thing that you can have, forgiveness of sins. The eyewitnesses were willing to die for the truth of what they saw, and many did die. You have to look at these passages on your own. There's different times where they're threatened. Stop preaching about Jesus. And they say, hey, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They say, we are witnesses of these things. We have to obey God rather than men. And they wanted to kill him. And guess what? Bible records they did kill them. Well, at least it records they killed James, the brother of John. We know from Christian history the rest of the apostles were killed. Uh, except for, I think, John, which was, he was tortured, uh, but he wasn't martyred. But some of them, okay, it says that according to uh, at least tradition or history, that Bartholomew, one of the apostles, was, the way that he was killed, he was flayed alive. Okay? Now here's the thing. The apostles either knew for sure that this was true or they knew it was fake. 
It wasn't just a legend or a mistake or something. I mean, if the whole thing was a fake, they knew that it was a, it was a fake. If there was something that I was faking about, and you said to me, admit that this is fake or I am going to fillet you alive, if I know that this is fake, you got me. Okay, put down the fillet knives. Uh, joke's over. But if, you're, if you really knew that this was the truth, like Bartholomew did, it's like, well, I, I'm not going to deny what I know is true. You don't die for what you know is a fraud. And then, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles was written down in various manuscripts and collected together as the Bible. If you look at Luke, Luke was not an eyewitness, but it says that he interviewed the eyewitnesses. It specifically says that, that he talked to them, that he was like a reporter. If you believe things that you read from the paper that are based on people reporting that interview eyewitnesses, that's what Luke was doing. John, at the end of his gospel, says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And we saw that Peter said that they were eyewitnesses as well. So the scriptures are historically accurate records. You can read the original reports. This isn't just, when you read the Bible, you're not just reading a report of a report of a report of a report for 2,000 years. You're reading what the original eyewitnesses or those that interviewed them wrote down. You're going right back to that early generation. And the scriptures are not merely historical records. They are, but they're also the inspired word of God. And that's the last point I have as this comes to you today. Scriptures are written down, and the Holy speaks to us through the Bible today. So I want to give you one last one. This is from 1 John. And when you read this, notice how many times he's saying, I actually saw this. Not just saw it, but I heard it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I mean, there's really no way he could bend over backwards more and stress that I really saw these things. I saw them, I heard them, I touched them, this is for real. And notice also he's writing these things also to you. He's saying, I have this joy in Christ. I have this fellowship. And I want you to have this as well. And so we started with this with the apostles at the very beginning, the first reports. And we've gone through how this has spread to us today and eventually to you. And so I want to finish by saying, where are you at what will you do with this testimony that you are hearing? Is this something that you will receive and you will trust Jesus Christ and be forgiven and be changed? Or you say, this is a nice story and I'm going I'm to walk away and do my own thing. You know, there's a new series on Netflix and there's some other stuff going on. And... So at the very end, if you're looking at the bulletin to fill it in, let me ask you this question. But don't write this down yet. Don't write this down. Will you believe this testimony and receive the forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus died and rose to give you? I said, don't write that down because I want you to write it down like this. Will I believe this testimony and receive the forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus died and rose to give me? That's a question you need to ask yourself. All of this. I believe it's historically reliable. I believe the resurrection is better attested than almost anything in history. And unless you're starting with the belief that, well, I just know this couldn't happen, that it is real. And in addition to it being historically accurate, I believe the Holy Spirit is telling you in your heart that this is the real deal. And I believe God wants you to know through Scripture how much He loves you. 
that Jesus Christ did this because he knows full well how much you need him. He knows full well that you have rebelled, that you've made a mess of your life. But you know what? He loves you. And he loves you so much he died on the cross, an amazingly painful death, and bore the wrath that you and I, that sinners, deserve so that you could have fellowship with him, with God the Father, with God the Holy Spirit, and with brothers and sisters in Christ forever. You can have your guilt taken away. Come to Jesus before you leave this room. Trust in him. Be forgiven. And then worship him with your life. This is what the resurrection is about. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the witnesses that you have given. We thank you for the reports that we receive and are recorded in Scripture and how believable it is and how much it makes sense, Lord. And thank you that along with this, the Spirit testifies to these things to let us know that these things are true. Lord, help us to live our lives knowing that this is true. And if this is true, it changes everything. This is the real deal. It means Jesus is who he says he is. It means he is Lord. He is Savior. He is the one that is worthy of our worship. He is the one that we should bow our knee to. We should believe what he believes and what he says. We should have the same view of Scripture as he does. We should find our identity in him. All of these things are true and literal and for real. And we know it because Jesus rose from the dead. Lord, thank you that Jesus did what we could never do. We could never wash away our own sins. But Jesus took them upon himself and got rid of them by dying for our sins on the cross. Lord, we worship Jesus. We thank you for our Savior who is risen. Jesus Christ is Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.